and thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, Dr. Manshramani shares the audio portion of his March 4th, 2021 webinar discussion with James Latinsky. Thanks everybody for joining. Uh, I am thrilled to have with me uh, Jim Latinsky, who is chairman and CEO of MP Materials, one of the largest rare earth producers in the world, uh, largest in the United States. Uh, and I am just super excited to have him today. It's timely. Obviously, any of you that read the Wall Street Journal saw the article about uh, rare earths uh, and its environmental impact in today's paper. But more importantly, in the context of rising US-China tensions, this is a timely conversation, uh, especially given a new administration and some of the dynamics thereof. So. Before we begin, uh, traditional advertising has to take place. Next week, I'm having John Hunter. John is a teacher, an educator who in 1978 started the World Peace Game. And that has snowballed into this global phenomenon. He's written a book, he's spoken at TED, he's spoken at the, at the Pentagon, at Google and other places about the World Peace Game um, and his use of it to help people think through global politics uh, and peace. Um, and so it, it should be a fascinating conversation. Uh, so he'll be on next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. And again, I'll send out the invitation probably later today. Uh, last week, we had Danielle DiMartino Booth, uh, a Fed watcher who talked about uh, how the bond market may be the proxy to pay attention to if you really wanted to understand what was happening. And during our conversation, the bond market fell apart, or at least the 10-year went over 150, and that caused chaos, at least during the session. So uh, anyway, a really interesting uh, conversation. That replay is available. Uh, before that, I had Emily uh, from Horizon Advisory. Emily talked about Chinese standards in the land of technology, uh, and specifically not just 5G, but also payment technologies and payment standards and how the attempt to control the architecture would give information value uh, that gave them insight into who had what inventory where and how and allow the Chinese government to have a little more leverage. So she's, she's quite skeptical of their intentions um, and thinks they may be nefarious. Um, before that, I had Kevin Warren, commissioner of the Big Ten, talked about student athletes, talked about compensation of student athletes, talked about athletics and colleges at a time of COVID, uh, et cetera. Really interesting conversation and personally very fascinating story, uh, inspirational uh, Kevin's story actually. Uh, before that I had Gilman Louie. Uh, Gilman Louie, founder of InQtel, uh, the CIA's venture capital arm. He's a venture capitalist who focuses on space and aerospace and cyber and robotics today. Uh, and we talked a lot actually, it's a common theme these days and Jim's gonna contribute to it, uh, US China dynamics. And uh, he talked about it specifically in the context of technology and technology competition. Um, and I began this uh, this year with Elliot Higgins. Elliot Higgins is the founder of Bellingcat. Bellingcat is a open source social media driven investigative journalist group that puts together information using publicly available data. Uh, and they solved the Malaysia Flight 17 mystery before anyone else in the world did, concluded the Russians shot it down. They identified Bashar Assad as having used chemical weapons before the world did, et cetera. And they do it with completely open sources uh, and social media. So all of that's background for uh, uh, the series, which was started to support the publication of my book, Think for Yourself, and I encourage you to get that. So with that said, and that long-winded background, thanks Jim for your patience as I ran through that. Oh. Uh, Thank you. I, it's an it's an incredible list, and I'm excited to be part of 
part of it and part of the yeah. program. So thanks for having me. It's awesome. Well, I'm honored to have you. So Jim, let's begin with your background. Um, yeah. You know, I'd love to know where'd you grow up, uh, family dynamics, et cetera. And, and, and more importantly, did you, do you think you always wanted to be an investor? Like, was there some tidbit in the past that said, hey, I'm going to be an investor when I get older? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, so I grew up in South Florida. I was born in Fort Lauderdale, raised in Boca. Um, and I do remember I traded stocks as a kid. I was always fascinated. I would kind of read the journal or what I, what I knew of it. Um, but my first job was a bag boy. Uh, and, then I, uh, and then I scalped concert tickets from there. And, okay. uh, and then I realized, uh, you know, I, I was always, I ha always had an entrepreneurial bent. Yeah. Um, so, so it sort of um, made, made sense. And then I, w I went on, you know, I kind of left that behind. I went to Yale. Uh, and then from there, my first job uh, out of college was Allen and Company, which is the famous media investment bank. Yeah. And then I went on to get a JD MBA and then uh, Fortress. And then I, you know, I was, I was sort of in the investment world, um, but it was, you know, I really wanted to do my own thing. I, I sort of studied, I'm a big student of history like yourself and pattern recognition. And, um, and so, you know, my, my view was I wanted to start my own firm. I wanted to kind of make my, my own mistakes because my, my view was if you'd studied all the history and, and everyone has a different story, you know, there's sort of a different path to get there, but there's a lot of, um, you know, some similarity in, 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 in it. And what you often find is, the great entrepreneurs try, maybe they fail, but they try to start early in being an entrepreneur. And uh, I felt like whatever I did, I was going to make mistakes. But if I kind of kept going, um, it would work out. And so I, I, um, you know, I, I worked very briefly um, at a fund, and then I convinced um, uh, a group of people to back me um, uh, at a at a pretty young age. Uh, there was I had interned uh, in grad school at a real estate hedge fund, and so some of the the people behind that backed me. And uh, I launched in 2006 with, with my own investment fund. Awesome. Um, and uh, so yeah, the rest is history. There you go. So I got to go back in time, though, before you get there. Okay. You got to tell me, what was it like to grow up with Todd? <laughs> Sorry, for, for those that don't well, know, uh, we... I, I knew uh, Jim's brother, Todd. I've known him for 30 years, almost 30 years, 25 years, uh, where we worked together on Wall Street in our first jobs out of college. So uh, anyway, I've known Todd for a long time. I've known Jim for 10 years or so. But anyway, Jim, so what was it like to grow up with Todd? Utter torture, utter <laughs> torture. He was the kind of brother, Vikram, when there were, you know, if there was like a, a chocolate um, that we each were supposed to get one, he would take mine and bite around all sides of it, you know, and then hand it to me and say, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, no, but he's a great brother, and 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 you know, as you know, we we work together now. Uh, but but my house was on one of four boys, so it was very competitive. Sure. Um, and so it was, you know, it was like a, it was like a mini Game of Thrones or something like that. So so I, I learned at a young age that I that um you know I had to fend for myself. There you go. Good. Good. Well, I, I have nothing but a lot of respect for Todd and you as yeah. well. So yeah, no, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. You got into why you launched JHL. Uh, you got a, this entrepreneurial bug. You wanted to do stuff. And then if we roll to the present, you made a pretty big bet here on a company yes. that others decided to leave for dead effectively, right? I mean, Molly Corp had gone bankrupt uh, and nobody really cared about it, but you did. And so walk us through the thesis that you had then. I know today you got a different, sure. more well-formed logic to the, it's probably more polished, honestly, today, et cetera. But, but back then you had a view and you wouldn't mm -hmm. have made the bet if you didn't have a view. And so what was the thinking then? And, and, and walk us through it from an investment perspective, 
and then maybe even a strategic logic as well. Sure. Well, you know, the interesting thing, Vikram, is it, it wasn't even a company. It was just a busted chemical plant that was that was essentially stranded in bankruptcy. So um, without getting too much in, into the details, it was when Molycorp went bankrupt, there were two major assets. There was a, a, a business that was a, down, a further downstream processing business that was frankly mainly uh, a lot of Chinese assets. And then there was Mountain Pass. Mm-hmm. And um, Oak Tree, one of the other creditors in the bankruptcy, wanted to reorganize around that business because they were yep. priority on that and send Mountain Pass into reclamation. And so actually Mountain Pass was literally on the days away from reclamation. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the courthouse steps in Delaware, we kicked in uh, a couple million dollars just to keep Mountain Pass in bankruptcy because it was in care maintenance. There were eight people and someone had to pay the trustee and the employees on site literally just to keep it from being reclaimed, which means it would have lost the permit and it would have been gone forever. Uh, Or not, sorry, not gone forever, but if you lose your permit in the state of California to operate something like that, you're talking about a decade, um, you know, in the absence of like a world war or something like that. And so anyway, so we we kicked in some money and my thought at the time was um, we had actually bought into the cap, into the capital structure, into the, into the secured bonds against Mountain Pass um, in the anticipation that it was going to go bankrupt. But with the thought that the people behind us would own it, it was Apollo was behind us. And then I think when the, the extent of the whole collapse happened, you know, the, they were they were wiped out. And and the mindset at the time was the, the Chinese had destroyed the market. There was no way any American entity could compete. Um, and so it was sort of left for dead. Oak Tree wanted nothing to do with it. And what we found, though, is actually as we dug in. Um, is that actually this is this is an iconic asset, right? This is the best rare earth asset in the world, right there in the state of California. Um, but what Molycorp had done, and we can certainly get into those details, but they had changed the way the the processing worked on the site that essentially deviated away from the natural advantage of that ore body, and that actually there was a path. It was going to be a multi-stage path um, that you could restore this, um, but there were a couple of things that would need to be done. We can get into that too. Uh, and so I believed that this could be done. So we kicked in some money. But but the thing is, is I wanted to make sure that we weren't going to throw good money after bad. So if we were going to get into this, it had to be, um, you know, it had to be a, a real plan. And so, sorry, it's such a long story. It could probably be yeah, a, you know, a great movie or a book. Um, <laughs> but but um, the short version is we felt like we could restore the site, but it was going to require one access to the Chinese market. And we would have to sell an intermediate product while we while we optimize the refining facility that was on site, because actually what a lot of people didn't fully appreciate is that the the refining facility worked perfectly well. It was the upstream, it was the the um, mill flotation and the change of workflow that the the predecessor had done that was all screwed up. And so what we did is we we felt like we could fix that, but once we fix that and optimize the rest, we we're going to need a market. And so we. We got a, a Chinese public company to to be our partner and give us some of the tech, technical expertise. And frankly, I know in hindsight, some folks criticized us for having a Chinese technical partner, but I do think it's relevant that this was one of those cases of reverse IP transfer to the U.S. I don't, I can't think of many others, but actually, you know, you think of our IP going over there. This was we're getting there, but but before we even did all that. We, we felt like the plan would have to be that we would need this partner because we would need access to the market because the supply chain is all there and yeah. we needed to have revenue at some point in the next five years. And so we actually came up with a plan and went to Cipius and said, this is what we'd like to do. We're going to buy this out of bankruptcy and do this with this partner. Here are our documents. If you aren't comfortable with this, um, then you know, tell us now and we just won't do it. And anyway, they said, go ahead. And the rest is history. 
Um, so, but so, so when you say CFIUS, uh, for those that don't know, the Committee on right. Foreign Investment in the United States, uh, part of the Department of Commerce that approves foreign activities and strategic areas or other assets in the United States. So you went to CFIUS saying that we were inviting the Chinese in? Essentially, that we were inviting in a Chinese uh, technical partner at the time so that we could get the benefit of, of you know, some of the, the advancements that had been made in, in rare earth processing as well as have the ability to access the market because all of the refining capacity. So for those who don't know, I think it's just quickly relevant to say with rare earths, you mine, you know, it's a rock, you mine it and you don't just put it in a bag and sell it. You've got to process it. It's, it's really a, a specialty chemical, right? It's a, a very extensive processing. And so the first stage is you take that rock full of rare earth and you concentrate it down into a heavily concentrated uh, concentrate that's, that's consists of all of the rare earths. And then from there, you refine it into the separated parts. So we currently sell that concentrated product to China and uh, while we finish our optimization over the next year. Um, but, but to do that, you need to be able to sell to refiners in China. And so we felt like we needed a partner to do so. Sure, sure. Um, so many questions that I can go down the path. <laughs> yeah. so, I know there's so many paths to go down. So, <laughs> well, think about like even bigger picture context on the strategic value of rare earths. When you were getting involved in buying the assets, were you thinking about the big geopolitical dynamics? Were you think, or was it just, hey, they just invested a billion plus dollars here, and I'm going to be able to buy it for cents on the dollar, and there's probably something of value, and there's definitely a business, and so I'll be fine. Or did you think, hey, I'm actually serving America's cause here? Yeah. Well, Vigram, I must have gone to the future and read one of your books <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I'm a big believer in cycles. And at the time, I remember it, it is, it, I mean, this goes with anything. If you buy a world-class asset at a discount to replace, a substantial discount to replacement costs at the bottom of a cycle, you know, usually luck finds you, right? And I actually, I remember the Molycorp IPO. I remember the fantasy, right? Of, oh, taking our supply chain back and we're going to sell materials into the clean energy economy. And, you know, when that thing went public, there wasn't even a Model S on the road, Right. And then, but you know, fast forward, it was it was already becoming clear. You know, Tesla was public. It was clear that we were going to have. I mean, obviously, the, the the scale of what we now see is is quite tremendous. But it was clear that the electric vehicle was the future. It was clear that that this asset had a lot of value. And so, given the fact that they had put all of this money into it, um, you know, we we you know we thought that there'd be a lot of upside to kind of come out of the the cycle, but no, I, frankly, we never expected to own this because we, we were in so cheaply relative to the, the total amount of capital put in that we thought the people behind us would own it. Um, but you know, cycle, yeah. <laughs> it's the cycle. So, no, it's fascinating. Uh, let's take a step back and talk about the uses of rare earths. So I know a lot of people say, okay, rare earths very strategic because it's got defense applications. That's true. Rare earths really strategic because it's got electrification concert, you know, roles. Okay, that's true. Also strategic because it's it's like filling, this thing's filled, <laughs> not filled, but it's got enough in it that when you add up billions of these things, it adds up to something. Right. Um, are there other potential uses? Are there other markets? Tell me sort of how you think about the end uses of things. And the reason I'm asking this is my quick study of Mountain Pass is 75% of the volume of stuff you get out of there is what, cerium and lanthanum, which is generally low value stuff. Yeah. But if you could find use for that, oh my God, even more upside, right? So uh, take that yeah. how you want. Great, sure. So great question. One of the, one of the things that people, every, every rare earth ore body is different. 
And there's a mixture, if you think about them, there's 17 rare earths and it goes kind of from left to right, lights to heavies. Yep. Um, and the cerium and lanthanum that you mentioned are typically in much larger percentage in any ore body relative to the mediums and the heavies. And so those are typically kind of a byproduct market because there's such a high volume of them. You know, they really trade for, for if, if you sell them, you don't get much, there's not much revenue there to sell cerium or lanthanum. But the scale of mountain pass is so large and the actual percentage of rare earths is so large that the analogy I always like to give, it's kind of like, what would you rather have 1% of Lake Michigan or 50% of a two liter bottle of Coke? Yeah. Right. And so when, when people kind of talk about the percentage of cerium and lanthanum, I say, wait a second, let's step back. Um, look at, look at our heavies, which is, which is 1%. Um, and then look at our NDPR, which is, which is roughly 16% of our rare earth mix. But, but when you look at the total volume, we're the second largest producer in the world. So at mountain pass, we now produce today so that, you know, people talk about the capability. We now produce 15% of global rare earth content, just us. So we, we are the second largest producer in the world. The, the Chinese industry is really six major players that the government kind of consolidated into six state-backed entities. And mm -hmm. but for one, which is Baotao, which is Inner Mongolia, yeah. um, which is their huge mining and iron ore and all that operation. Other than that, we are larger than any of the other Chinese producers. So Mountain Pass is just to, the analogy I always give is if this were oil, it'd be Saudi Arabia, you know, from a cost of production and a scale of, of it. So, so um, but what, what critics will say is, oh, well, your, your heavy percentage, and so the heavies, you mentioned like dysprosium or terbium, which which are typically uh, even more used in, in certain ultra high magnetic applications and defense applications. Um, people will say, oh, well, you have such a low percentage, so we need to focus in other areas. And But actually, Mountain Pass alone can satisfy all of the DOD's needs um, because the, what people might not also fully understand is actually defense purposes are single digit percentage of demand. Sure. And actually to answer your question, you know, we're really talking the big growth areas of tomorrow, Vikram, are electric vehicles, wind turbines, drones, robots. You know, I think we'll all have a robot dog one day. <laughs> so, you know, there's that um, or, you know, think of RoboCop, right? Like, who knows what the, those cool applications will be, but uh, air taxis. Um, but yeah. but today it's it's EVs and wind turbines and then obviously the F-35 and some of those other things. But you're really talking about very small percentage of the industry for, for those ultra- um, High high defense applications, and it's like night vision goggles, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, sure, sure. And and your iPhone, the the you know what makes your iPhone vibrate, um, solid state disk drives, although those aren't you know our MRI machines. There's you know the way to think about it is, if there's motion, typically there's some kind of energy that gets to something that causes motion, and the magnets are what make the motion. And so when you have an advanced motion technology of any kind or anything that has motion in it, odds are high that the most efficient way to make that happen is with a permanent magnet, i.e. a rare earth magnet. Yep. And so, and, and rare earth magnets versus other magnets, the benefit is rare earths because of their chemical properties uh, mean you have more efficiency, lighter weight, uh, better able to withstand certain temperatures. And so anything that can be done sort of with typical magnetics can be done a lot better with rare earth magnetics. Yep, got it. Um, so, given those applications and given that demand story, uh, there's a long, long trajectory of demand that you can imagine here. Will there be enough rare earths 
out there to satiate the needs that we can see. I mean, like you got a big set of EV mandates globally coming, right? You got a big set of sort of other alternative energies coming. By the way, the defense industry is not exactly retrenching these days. <laughs> They're moving right. forward. You got space sort of moving forward. You got all sorts of other dynamics here. Uh, is there going to be enough? By the way, this is why, Vikram, this is why this conversation is so fun because it's it just really, I, life really comes down to, as I always say, death, taxes, and cycles, right? Like this is, we've been in a commodity, I mean, yeah. cycles really, it's everything, right? And um, we've been in a commodity bear market for a decade. And now, you know, the last commodities bull market was sort of the, the infrastructure development in China. And now I think we're seeing the, the world push for decarbonization technologies like EVs and, yep. and yep. I, all of this stuff. It's not just rare earths, although I think rare earths are particularly acute and in, in shortage relative mm -hmm. to, but, but nickel, copper, lithium, all of these commodities. I think when people look at the hundreds of billions of dollars of capital um, that has, that's been raised or, or just look at the capital markets, you know, Vikram, there's a Chinese uh, EV maker that trades in the New York Stock Exchange that's worth more than GM. I don't know if people fully appreciate that kind of dynamic. So the, the yeah. scale of capital going into electric vehicles um, is, is tremendous. And so I think we're setting up for just a, a huge bull market in these commodities. And so to answer your question, there is, there's, there's enough at a price. And then the question sure. is sort of what's the, the price? What's the reaction function? Yeah. Well, bingo. So that's where I want to go. So you just, you've talked about cycles. I think about cycles. I write about the dynamics thereof. You know, the cure for high prices is high prices. Right. And the cure for low prices is low prices. They yes. can't be self-correct. And so if we've got this amazing story right now that looks perfect, looks like you got a nice tailwind of demand, supplies being held back for various reasons, lags, et cetera. But you got a lot of hype. And so the mm -hmm. question I have is, is there enough substance under the hype? Look, you hear about projects all over America, not just Mountain Pass. There's projects in other parts of the uh, of the United States, Alaska. You sort of, you know, Canada's got stuff. Obviously, Australia's got a whole bunch of stuff. Burma. We can go down a list that there's others. Oh, rare earths are not rare. And yes. so, won't high prices just solve this problem? So, you know what? Let's put this in kind of boom bust analogy context. Okay, <laughs> so. Plugging this it. is, yeah, I'm, I'm plugging your books all day long here. Um, but no, but I, the best way to, to think of this, I think, is, and, and frankly, one of the things that really attracted me to focus on this situation, um, aside from the, the you know, the, I, I love America and the patriotic reasons that this was important to achieve for all of us as a mission for the country, for environmental reasons, all of those things. But just as a business person, the best analogy is Internet 1.0, 2.0. And so I think of the last, at the peak of the last commodity cycle around the 2010 timeframe, um, there was the, the shock in May, I'm sure that gets, that always gets mentioned in the context of rare earths, the China-Japan shipping incident where China threatened to cut off supply, rare earth prices went crazy, that led to the boom bust of Mali Corp, right? I call that 1.0. And what people don't fully appreciate is that, you know, that boom bust was really a function of, of you know, failed execution, mismanagement, it had nothing to do with prices. And we can get into that. But yeah. prices boom bust, there was a short term fear over supply, a quick shock, prices went vertical. And then over the next couple of years, kind of settled down into into a, a bear market. Um, that was a supply shock. 2.0. And so if you think internet 1.0, you think pets.com, and then, you know, Perfect. Amazon, Google, Facebook come out of that. And we, we all thought the internet would be huge. And there was a, a huge boom cycle. But then the, the fantasy was way ahead of the bandwidth and, you know, it, everything collapsed. And then out of that, though, I think it's 
fair to say, look at us, we're on a Zoom today. Um, the, the power of what came out of all of that is much more than probably we even realized would happen at that time. And this isn't the internet, but, but I think for an analogy, it just helps you understand what a demand-led boom means. And so now for the 2.0, which I believe we're just embarking on, is the demand story, where the electric vehicle is only 3% penetrative. I believe we're going to 90 plus percent. Um, frankly, China's the largest OEM market in the world. They've decided it. Europe's decided it. California, New Jersey, most yep. of the United States has decided it. So we're going, you know, and every, every automaker's decided it. So we're going there. That's the future. And so I think that this is the new demand cycle. And that actually, you know, a, a short-term supply shock is one thing. This is, I believe, hopefully a more sustainable, stable type of boom, where as penetration rises and overall demand increases, we're going to see sort of a steady rise of prices um, from here in a more sustainable boom. Yep. Does it incentivize recycling? Can you recycle rare earths? So I mean, I mean, great I mean, question. Europeans have always designed with this end of life logic that's, hey, we're going to recapture the high value stuff, whether it's batteries or other things. And, you know, but I mean, someone's got to think about redesigning this thing to right. be able to pull out these little slivers and trace in a way that makes it worthwhile, right? Is that, so, is that a possibility? Yeah. So many important thoughts on that. So I'm going to, I'll fire match it. We'll go never, but, okay. but um, certainly when, when you have this point in the cycle, re recycling is very important, but where we are today, um, it's unfortunately, it's just not yet economic. And when you think about recycling, certainly we want to recycle all of these commodities, whether it's lithium or nickel or any of these things, but rare earths, you know, you're talking about the magnets to get those out of an EV motor, which there's just not that many of because we're not that penetrated and then get that down. Um, there are tons of hucksters out there, if you will, who've got recycling plans and, and get, you know, who are potentially getting you know, certain funding, if you will, and it's, but, but it, it just cannot be economic today. That doesn't mean never, but actually recycling, the way it's going to happen is it's likely going to happen from, I, I believe ultimately over time, MP materials will lead rare earth cycling, uh, recycling in the Western world in the sense that recycling in the rare earth space is essentially solve, it's, it's, it's purification and solvent extraction, which is what we do at Mountain Pass in our refining facilities. That's our stage two. And so proper recycling of rare earths is really going to be closer to the solvent extraction process, if you will, than sort of some new thing that I think people are experimenting with. Um, and so there are also you hear of, so for example, you'll hear headlines that Apple recycles their magnets. Apple will only buy recycled magnets. That's what they say. Unfortunately, it's marketing. And what I mean by that is what Apple buys, we all buy recycled magnets which is the Chinese assembly lines for magnetics, mm -hmm. the scraps that go to the ground, the Chinese pick that up off the ground, send it back through their process and call that recycled mag magnets. Yeah. I call that more efficient manufacturing. To me, yeah. recycling is if there was no new production, no new mines, no new magnets, and we just needed to make stuff out of what we have, that to me is recycling. Yep. And so unfortunately, nobody does that today, not even Apple um, sort of despite, no, I believe they're working towards that. But, sure. but just to be clear, when we hear those headlines, um, but but it's very expensive to recycle this because you're you're talking about um, you you got to aggregate it, get it done, solve and extract. And so I, I do believe that's part of the future that will lead, but we're just not there yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, given you're talking about processing, you know, one of the topics that folks that pay attention to rare earths that maybe drill down a little bit, maybe not as deep as they could or should, um, think about when they think about the processing here 
is the environmental footprint that it leaves, the environmental degradation, how bad this is for the environment. You and I have talked about this, but uh, I'd love to hear you describe yeah. it a little more. The processing, and by the way, we certain forms of rare earth materials, whether it comes from mon monazite or whatever, may have more radioactive components to it. Others may have less radioactive components, but there's an environmental footprint, of course, to processing these in terms of wastewater and tailings and radioactivity, if there is any, and sort of whether things are inert or they move or what have you. So talk to me about the footprint yeah. environment. So Vikram, you must have been reading the Wall Street Journal today, huh? <laughs> Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> yeah. So I guess the editorial of the Wall Street Journal today was about, it was essentially a Hobbesian choice of if we want, you know, we, we need to destroy the environment to make rares. And so, uh, and, and uh, they usually get it right, but I think in this case, they were just dead wrong on a number of levels. And I don't think they fully understand the industry when it comes to rare earths in the sense that we're living proof. If you think about MP materials, second largest producer in the world, profitable, most environmentally friendly producer by far. We 95% of the water we use at Mountain Pass we recite is recycled. Um, we have dry tailings, which yeah. if you're not a mining expert, so dry tailings mean that um, everything we take, we take it out of the ground. Um, we extract the rare earths and then what goes back into the ground in a line impoundment is essentially sand. Think of it as the rock as if the rare earths are pulled out. Um, and so it's a zero discharge process, meaning anything that touches our process never touches the ground again. Yep. Um, and so we operate, I mean, we, I could tell, take you through all those things, but just the fact that we operate in California in a site that was built and permitted seven years ago tells you everything you need to know. Imagine what it took to get that done. And even with all of that, um, we're profitable. And by the way, we would have been profitable if you, if you look at where we believe we'll be at the end of stage two, um, we would have been profitable wherever rare earth prices were over the last decade. And so this idea that the Chinese crashed the market, um, you know, is sort of a misunderstood concept. It was understandable for what was the state of affairs then, but we've been able to turn around this asset so extraordinarily well that we've restored American leadership in this space. And yep. so I think that's, so we believe, we don't think it's a hobby and choice. We believe that you, that we can be profitable and environmentally friendly at the same time. Yep. Um, and so um, I, I think that there's sort of, there's a little bit of hypocrisy at the extremes on both sides of the political aisle in the sense that there are some people who believe that we just need to produce, you know, create our own supply chain at any cost and that we should, you know, sacrifice our ideals um, to get there. Uh, almost like to win the Cold War, we should become communists, yeah. right? And then there are other people who are like, we need to decarbonize in any kind of industry. You shouldn't have a mine. You shouldn't get on an airplane. We should go back to the Stone Age. And that's how we're going to decarbonize. And I think both sides of that, you know, we, we really see ourselves as in the middle, which is, yeah. no, actually, the way ahead is let's embrace American ideals. Let's be sustainable. Let's actually lead because these are the GDP industries of tomorrow. And so let's show that American leadership can actually apply our values around sustainability and get this done. We just need to be better. We need to be more efficient, more effective, you know, fr frankly, just be as pragmatic as we can to get this job done. And, and, and so that's a long-winded way of saying, I don't believe that the environment needs to be sacrificed to do it. I think it's a self-serving argument by people who, who either are, have projects that are toxic waste dumps that have some rare earths or, you know, or, or something else like that. Well, the part I find fascinating is to me, and maybe this is my bias in terms of trying to get people to zoom out and see the bigger picture, that, okay, even if it did 
actually harm the environment, which I'm pleased to hear it's not. But even if it did harm the environment a little bit, think of the benefits it's producing in the form of magnets no and enabling alternative energy and the electrification. That's going to take a lot of environmental pressure away at the same time that you're maybe add a little bit of environmental pressure here with the mining footprint, but you're going to take away a lot of pressure over here because you've electrified the transportation fleet or what have you. And so, you know, I think yeah. uh, that's exactly awesome. it. It's that's exactly it. And I think that the people who say we need to change our ideals as Americans to get there, it's kind of the same thing as saying, well, we just shouldn't fly. Like, I no, actually, we should fly. We should just figure out how to do it in a way that works. And it's going to require a lot of investment. And, yeah. and frankly, it'll be a painful transition. Um, but we've got to we've got to do it as a society. Um, yeah. And I have lots of thoughts on, on yeah. you know, infrastructure wise, what it's going to take to get there. You know, you and I have had this conversation and I think it's an amazing tangent we could go in, but of just how we get to, I feel like you don't need to be a climate change person. You don't need to believe in climate change to know that America, the United States of America to preserve its leadership position needs to lead in the decarbonization technologies of tomorrow. That's where the GDP is going. And whether you believe it's relevant or not, and obviously you and I believe that an electric vehicle and a wind turbine are gonna be a net positive effect for the, for the environment, even if you don't believe that, um, you should still believe that for American leadership purposes, we should want to dominate these industries. Yep. Yep. Let me change gears for just a minute before sure. we come back and we're going to talk supply chain and how long and vertical integration you want to get, whether you want to go down to magnets or cars or motors or what have you. But before we do that, Jim, one of the things I ask all my guests is, do you have a favorite book or a book you'd recommend to, to, to this audience? Because people love sure. the book recommendations. I don't know why, but they do. Sure. Actually, I'm going to, I'll stay on topic. And actually, the, it's the book I'm reading right now, which is the, the new Bill Gates book on climate change. Okay. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, frankly, it's, it's, so I'm, I'm in the middle of it right now. And it's, it's actually what I like about it is it's, it's really sort of simple to understand and explains a lot of, um, a, a lot of the things about, you know, about how to get there. And then I, I think towards the end, he's going to have real solutions. Um, on on what he believes to be the trip, but I, I do think it, it's been a really sort of simple, easy way to understand kind of some of these issues we're talking about, and I'm I'm enjoying it. So that'll be that'll okay. be my contribution to the <laughs> to the book recommendation. <laughs> yeah, perfect. What about uh, miniseries, movies, Netflix, movies, movies, yeah. stuff like that? Is there anything that's got your attention that's just fun? Yeah, of course. Well, uh, so. You know, I'm a big time movie buff. I've, I'm like that guy who can tell you, oh, that movie was All from right. 1988, you know? So, but, um, so I'll pick, uh, I'll have some fun. I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to like, again, stay like, you know, one, like a one track mind kind of guy here and, right. and go think magnetic. So on Netflix, actually, it came out about a year or so ago. There's a movie called Six Underground. Have you seen that? I have with Ryan Reynolds. I have so not. it's, okay. So it starts off at the beginning so-so, but anyway, towards, he has, um, I won't give away the movie or anything. But he has a magnetic weapon that's really cool, okay. um, and so it's it's a very futuristic magnetic weapon. So anyway, Six Underground will be my all right my contribution. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> all right, but it's, the movies, the movie, just you know, the movies. Um, it's about a um, it's about a rare earth magnetic billionaire who fakes his own death and becomes a mercenary um, to fight injustice in the world, and he oh. has a cool magnetic weapon. So. You know, I, I don't plan on faking my own death, but I, I could certainly relate to the character a little bit. There you go. Awesome. <laughs> Looking forward to watch watch it. Yeah. That'll be fun. Um, yeah. All right. Let's go to vertical integration. So you talked about you got to mine, you want to process it, 
You don't want to send it through the Chinese processors. But ultimately, processed rare earths or rare earth oxides, that's not the goal. Nobody really cares about that. We care about that because what it produces, maybe it produces a magnet. We can get it put together in a magnet. But honestly, I don't really care about magnets. I care about the magnet that helps make the motor more efficient or makes the motor lighter or insert, right? And even that, I don't really care about. I care about the functionality that that provides, right? Yes. Ultimately, we're trying to go towards electrified transportation or whether it's better guidance systems or, you know, or what have you. Um, so where does the vertical integration logic stop in your book? Why stop where you stop? Sure. Well, the answer is that we shouldn't stop anywhere. We should have full supply chain reliability and diversity. So actually, there's there's a famous uh, New York Times article actually about a conversation that occurred between Steve Jobs and President Obama. And it was basically President Obama asking Steve Jobs, what would it take to get the iPhone back here, right? Production for the iPhone. Why can't we make those in America? And Steve Jobs says they're never coming back. Those jobs are never coming back. And it's not, and, and, and the point of the article is, and this article is, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, whatever it was. Um, the point was, is that it, it's not because of environmental standards or labor. It's because of supply chain diversity and reliability. When they needed to alter the product or make some change or get quick to market, the fact that the Chinese had a vast and diverse supply chain was a defining factor in, in moving the iPhone over there. And then obviously it's reflexive, it feeds on itself. Yep. And so my belief is, is that rare earths need to be viewed in that context so that this, this, this whole framework that is just so topical of the 2010 cutoff, right? Of like, what if the Chinese cut off rare earths? We're not going to be able to make F-35s. I mean, it's really the wrong focus. It's a backward looking, it's fighting the last war. Okay. Yep. The real issue is that we need to, if we're going to have companies that are manufacturing in the West. And they're going to compete on a global economic stage. And this is, if you think we're headed to Cold War 2.0, or you think it's just friendly economic competition, wherever you are on that spectrum, if we want Western and specifically American companies to compete, they need to, and, and we want those jobs here, they need to know that they can compete against Chinese companies who have that diverse and reliable supply chain. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that we have diverse and reliable supply chain all the way upstream here, because that is the strategic advantage. And it starts with access to materials. And again, that's why Elon Musk is talking about mining, right? Just the headlines today, Tesla's getting involved in a nickel mine. They talked about lithium and batteries. And so I think yeah. it's across that landscape. And I really think that unfortunately, some of the folks who are focused on this cutoff issue, because whenever I get asked by you know someone in, in DC or the media, well, what if the Chinese cut us off like 2010? I always say, well, what if they cut off iPhones? Yeah. When, I, I think, I think not having an iPhone would be, would be, you know, cause Apple to collapse and much more damaging to our economy than, you know, cutting off some materials that DOD already has stockpiled for, for decades. So, so I really think that we're missing the bigger picture economic competition argument here, which is just that it's not because our labor is bad. It's not because we're, we're too strict environmentally. Those are, it is true that it's, it's cheaper in China labor-wise. It is true that it's much easier to get things done. But the, the existential question is supply chain diversity and reliability. And that means it's all the way upstream yep. to the material. So you mentioned stockpiling. So let's touch on that very briefly. Not the answer is what you're suggesting. Sorry, say that again. I was drinking some water. Oh, so stockpiling, you mentioned the DOD stockpiling. Uh, is that, that you're, it sounds like you're well, saying it's not the answer. 
Well, for a handful of, of certain unique military applications, I assume that they've got that stock and it's rounding error kind of stuff. Sure. And frankly, warfare of the future is going to be much more oriented around AI and semiconductors and robot. And so I just don't think that that's a major issue. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not privy to what DOD has, but I'm going to assume that for those really unique use cases that they've got enough to feel comfortable to, to make it a decade or two. So, yeah, so I don't think that's, okay, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So you, you mentioned China, the diversity. Is this more than just cluster logic, right? I mean, there's a reason that sort of this economic theory of clusters, there's reason that venture capital and sort of tech innovation happens in Silicon Valley or, you know, some of the biotech stuff happened around MIT and stuff. Uh, is it that they've just got the rare earth processing cluster over there or is it more intense and more difficult than that? And where I'm getting at is I was, I did a little research here to figure out how many people are doing research on rare earths, the uses of them, metallurgy in the old school sense here in the United States. And there are very few engineering programs that even pay attention to this topic, its use and its sort of development. Colorado School of Mines maybe has some focus there, but other than that, there's not much going on. Is right. it a talent issue? Is it a personnel issue? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head on a cluster issue, which is that the, the Chinese, you know, there's the famous Deng Xiaoping expression, the Mideast has oil, China has rare earths. I think that they realized that the fossil fuel economy was not something that they were gonna compete in over the long term. And so to their credit, very intelligently, they started with rare earths 20 years ago, 25 years ago, took over that industry, but then moved downstream. Like the same people who are telling me, um, oh, what if they cut us off? Um, I don't think they realize that there are a number of Chinese EV makers that are public trading in our markets today that are bigger than GM, right? And so they've moved downstream. They're, they've been strategic to their credit. And so I think, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll see you know, plants in Tennessee or South Carolina of, of Neo or Chaopeng or some, some of these manufacturers, they've really moved downstream. And I think it starts with that cluster of the supply chain for whatever the industry is, and 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 to their good fortune, if you will, um, they took over rare earths, which is the feedstock for a lot of this expertise. And yes, they have, I mean, the the scale of PhDs in rare earths. Um, and by the way, they all study mountain pass. So mountain pass is like the iconic site in the world. If you're a Chinese PhD, you likely did your dissertation on on mountain pass. And so go. even they are in awe of the site that we have. And, um, but, but so they certainly have focused on the supply chain, but to your point, I don't, I do not think it's too late. I do not believe that we've lost these industries with the EV, the wind turbines, robots, drones, um, all of this stuff that is going to create the landscape of, of tomorrow. It is still early innings, right? We're not fully penetrated. And so I think actually it's not too late if we actually think about this issue that way towards, and maybe we'll get into it, standardization industrial supply chain and kind of getting this whole landscape as opposed to just thinking about it as like, oh, let's let's open some mines and then that's it. That, bingo, you're getting at where I wanted to go, Jim, which is how do we actually develop this resilient, diverse supply chain? What do we do, uh, right? Is it, you know, again, we've got announcements. Again, I can't tell. I have difficulty deciphering the hype from the substance uh, from my seat uh, as a generalist who doesn't know uh, in deep sense any of this stuff well. Uh, but you know, you've got announcements of all sorts of projects that are happening around the United States. Will that solve our problem? Is it just time? No, because if we had if we had unlimited money and unlimited rare earths in this country today, we'd still be sending it all to China, be turned into magnets. And so rare earths are not the challenge, right? The challenge is the whole the multi-billion 
dollar supply chain. And so, but I think it actually, this parallel, right, we're talking about it in semiconductors. We're talking about it across a number of industries. Yeah. I actually, so I have a solution for you, Vikram. I'm going to get really wonky. I'm going to get really wonky on you. Okay, okay. you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a free market guy. You know, I, I, so like, let's go back to, let's go back to Reagan. Let's go back to the 1981 Economic and Recovery Tax Act. Okay. And when Reagan went into office, we were suffering from rampant inflation. Right. There were there were actually a lot of people at the at, you know the tail end of the Carter years who thought that we were going to lose it to the Soviet Union, right? So we we the psychology of the we had Iran hostages, the psychology of the country, really bad state. And when he went into office, President Reagan, and by the way, a bipartisan Congress. So this was a universal, this was a you know a joint thing, passed IRTA in 1981. And what that did is it created accelerated de depreciation, which we hear all the time, but coupled with the following concept, which doesn't exist today no passive loss limitation on partnerships, hmm. um, which meant that people could invest in partnerships um, for infrastructure. In this case, it was real estate and oil and gas because we were, you know, we were, uh, we were worried about oil and gas. And it led to a huge investment boom in real estate and oil and gas, okay? And uh, in fact, because what that structure did is it basically meant that people were able to invest in all these tax shelters and there was tons of abuse, a lot of bad, you know, a lot of stupid investments were made. But what it did is it created almost a free option for the free market investors to go at these spaces. And yeah. so what happened? Our skylines changed. Oil and gas started gushing. You know, there were a lot of these things capital that we got. Flow. Yeah, capital, capital flow. flow. Capital yeah. flow. And by the way, it was misallocated in some cases. Yeah. But the free market in general did a lot of things. And by the way, part of that whole boom was, you know, the, the, there were a ton of things going on then and whatever. It doesn't need, don't need to get into that. Um, but the point is, is that I believe that whatever the government incentivizes industry to do, it will do. It's that simple. People will do what they're incentivized to do. And so what I think we should do is we should have the right wing and left wing come together. And so for the people who are focused on national security and believe in free markets, and then the people who want a green new deal and are focused on climate change and decarbonization, let's bring it together and let's have a free market oriented tax incentive package on decarbonization infrastructure. And so let's, let's, and, and let's, and, and there's going to be some waste, but what it'll do is I think it could totally recreate the American supply chain in a very quick period. If we just make the economic incentives so extraordinary to start building semiconductor factories here, to make magnet plants and all these other things that we want. And yeah. yes, it, it's going to hit the deficit. There's going to be some stupid things done. But sure. the choices are have the government mandate and pick projects and it'll be, you know, we could have cylindras mm -hmm. uh, or we can let the private market just totally unleashed. And I think the innovation that we'll see, the investment that we'll see. And I think with, I think within five years, we would really solve this problem. And by the way, the the climate change people will get what they want and the free market people will get what they want. And, and I think that kind of thing could be a bipartisan package. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that's my solution. Well, look, it makes sense, which is why you're not in D.C., I guess. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, so look, actually, all joking aside, you're talking about getting capital flowing. 
and lots of capital and some of it will be misallocated and the result will be will be left with great infrastructure that will be proving very useful and provide returns for decades and decades to come right you can argue that with fiber optic we overinvested companies went bankrupt but we got the fiber optic we got the infrastructure it's great in fact there was a guy who wrote a book called pop why bubbles are good for the economy and it was exactly this when you over allocate capital you build out great things you lower the cost incrementally for each of those infrastructure items thereby enabling future success on top of that and so yes. you can imagine that so let me turn it to something that you're very comfortable and familiar to discuss here jim which sure. is i can argue that we got capital flowing nicely now it's in a new structure called a spac yeah. right in fact you know of it well right your former colleagues at fortress you guys got together yes. that's how you came public right so all right, let's talk first as in your hat as a investor. Uh -huh. Have we gone too far with the SPACs? Are there too many SPACs? So it's an amazing, I was actually at the trail end of what I was going to say before. I was going to say, by the way, to be optimistic, we already have a little bit of this happening in the world right now, and it's in the SPAC landscape. <laughs> and so actually, you perfect segue, you read, you read my mind. Oh. Um, uh, I, I actually do believe, I think SPACs are a perfect example. It's a new way for capital formation. We chose, so we, we hired Morgan Stanley to do an IPO. We were on that route. And then what we discovered, and I'm happy to get into the details of the market all you want, but yeah. the, the gist of it, I'll, I'll actually do this really quickly because I think it's an important point. Yeah. If a growth company goes public, so let's say you, you have a business that's gonna take five years of investment and then you're gonna have a huge amount of cash flow. Um, if you go public, there's no safe harbor on forward-looking statements. And so if you say, I'm gonna invest for five years and then here's what cash flow is gonna be. And you don't hit that, you can be sued. You're legally liable for that. It's a forward-looking statement. In a merger, there's no such thing. It's it's a it's a board exercising their business judgment to merge or not. So a SPAC is legally a merger. So I think what people sort of outside of Wall Street are not fully appreciating is that the SPAC structure is an attempt to get an IPO quicker, actually in a more transparent way, because the management teams can share more about their business and not worry about the, the legal exposure of a forward-looking statement around an IPO. Now, the challenge is, of course, and we're seeing it, is there's just utter lunacy with people making up numbers five years from now. But bad people are going to do bad things. They, they do it with the internet. They do it with automobiles. And you know wherever there's money, there's going to be fraud. But the good thing about the SPAC structure is that it's actually, exactly as you said, it's bringing capital. It's getting a lot more companies public earlier than otherwise might not have been. And like EV, the EV landscape is a perfect example. My guess is 80 to 90% of the companies, the SPACs, or, or just automakers in general, will go bankrupt or, or consolidate in the coming years. And so there'll be a lot of losses and pain. But through that, we've pulled forward the electrification of the auto by, what, a decade? By many, many years. Um, because the Fords and GMs of the world look out and see the market cap in Tesla and all these companies, and they know that they're dead meat if they don't transition. So anyway, I think it's all net positive, and we're seeing some of this in the capital markets. But hey, why not have DC throw some some fuel to that fire? Sure, sure. So am I to read into that that you were lacking in capital access? No, so so, so we so, I guess what I'm getting at is you chose to go down the path of a SPAC. And yeah, it came with a pipe and you got some cash with it too. But was it because there was not there wasn't the appetite for cash either privately or otherwise, or there wasn't the access that you would have otherwise needed, and therefore this was a path that gave it to you? Oh well, this was the most efficient, cheapest cost of capital relative to if we were to do it privately. You're saying, 
Um, but this also gave a lot of benefits for our longer term plan. We're a perfect example of, we had our optimization project, um, you know, we, we stated our optimization project was 170 million and then we wanted to kind of move downstream from there into magnetics. And you know, for us, we didn't, you know, we, we are profitable. We, we are cash flow positive just in our stage one today. Mm-hmm. However, we wanted to accelerate our investment and obviously we wanted to do it in the most thoughtful way that we could. And that meant taking the company public so that we can continue to invest. And then there's also the added benefits, frankly, of having given, given that we have such an important national security asset, being a public company with a blue chip board, you know, we have just for the, for the national security folks and we have the general counsel of Lockheed Martin is on our board, uh, former chairman of the joint chiefs, general Dick Myers is on our board and we have a number of outstanding individuals. And so the point is, is that being a public company allows us now to have that transparency, to have that expertise come join the party, so to speak, um, and, and to have a currency to, to the extent that we need to bring other pieces to the table, we'll be able to do that more efficiently. Changes how you spend your time. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. I mean, I mean like, uh, look, every CEO I know of a public company complains about being public and says, look, I want the benefits of being public without having to be public. <laughs> yeah. Right? So- I, well, I, I view it a little bit differently in the following, because so remember, I was a hedge fund manager for 15 years yep. and I've, I've, re- I've returned all that capital. I'm full time doing this. And I will tell you that I guess being on the other side of the table for so long um, gives you an appreciation for that side of the table. And I, I really do. I view being public as actually it's an it's an honor. It gives you a cheaper cost of capital. There's yep. there's a responsibility towards it. And I, I don't mean to be hokey, but I, I really actually do mean that our shareholders have the right to transparency. Um, and, and so we, we I wanna, and I don't care if they're long or short, we'll, we'll talk to short sellers as much as we'll talk to long and all of them are important to the market. And yep. so our goal is to be a great public company. And I think particularly with this asset, but frankly, particularly with our plan to become a true Western leader, right? We wanna be a champion. The Chinese have plenty of supply chain champions. We'd like to be a supply chain champion um, for the United States of America. And so to do that properly, I think we should be a public company. We should be held to those standards. Um, we should be listed in the NYSC. You should be able to buy us. And then, you know, and then the good news is we can have people, you know, stop complaining about opaque ownership because they can look at an SEC filing and stop making up stuff. <laughs> well, look, you, you went there, so I'll ask about it. You got a yeah. Chinese owner. You got an owner, your former Chinese partner is an equity owner of your business. Should I, as yes. an American, worry about that? Or are they just a passive, like everybody else, purchaser? And I'm going to broaden the question for you because it, it maybe be interesting to hear your insights here. The Chinese own pieces of some large asset managers right. in the United States and the Chinese own pieces of all sorts of things here. Is that sort of right. a capture in some sense? Is it, do you worry about that broadly and then specifically for you? Yeah, and so, so Shangha, our former technical partner, um, who now just acts as a distribution agent. They don't buy our product, but they help us sell it. It's a lot easier to sell a product in China with a Chinese sales, with Chinese company as the seller, not, not an American company. So, so they provide that service if we want it. We're free to sell our product anywhere. They, they own 8% of our public equity. They don't have any special rights or whatever. But what I always say to people is, you know, frankly, the PLA or the CCP could buy 8% of Boeing. They may own 8% of Boeing for all we know via, you know, entities. And so, an NYSE listed company, people are free to buy and sell. Obviously, to the extent someone goes over 10%, um, you know, that, that starts to get challenging and you have to report it. And so I view that as not an issue at all. Anyone is welcome to show up and buy 8% of our stock. It doesn't, they have no impact on our board. 
Um, I'm obviously the largest shareholder of the company. And, and I mentioned the members of the board that we have, none of those people are, are phased. And so whether it's Tesla or Apple or Boeing, I mean, all of these companies have people who are you know, Chinese nationals buying um, their shares. And I, I don't even see why that's an issue. That's the point of capital markets to have all of that. And I, you know, for, as far as at MP Materials, we have, you know, a multi-billion dollar uh, chemical facility in mind sitting in the Mojave in the state of California in the middle of federal land that's surrounded by a lot of, uh, you know, different military things, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that is a safer national security position than having all a factory and all our IP outside of Shanghai or making everything that we do in China. Not And again, not, not to knock those companies, they're global behemoths, but, um, you know, I, I feel like we, you know, we are proudly serving our role in the supply chain. And I think any criticism that some entity may own 8% of our public shares, um, you know, I, I, I just, I don't get it. Yeah, no, fair point. Do you think it could turn into an issue over time? I mean, look, play out, uh, and I realize that part of this is just hypothesizing and you and I just having a conversation about what the future may hold. And my guess is you may have slightly more insight than I do on this, but the truth is neither of us has great insight, which is play forward the US-China conflict or rivalry escalates and it does do they a could they or would they or might they actually do what people talk about where they shut off the rare earth processing and say you know what we're not processing it for any american product that's it we're not anything is going to america we're not a rare product and that's number one but number two if it does escalate even if it's not rare earth specific does it become a liability to have Chinese shareholders? Does it become a liability to have Chinese business partners or distribution agents? Does that become a liability? Well, it's all, the answer is it's unknown whether it becomes a liability, but I think before we even ask that question, we have to realize it's all so globally intertwined that we're past the point of no return. If, if there were a true break, right, beyond a Cold War 2.0, what would Apple do? What would Boeing do? What would Tesla do? I mean, what would what would any member of the Dow do? What would Starbucks do, mm -hmm. right? Their business is probably bigger in China or soon to be bigger in China than it is here. So at the end of the day, the, the global economies are intertwined. And that's why, I, I again, I think that with some of these kinds of fears that we're, we're fighting a backward looking war, if you will, quote unquote, yeah. in the sense that the idea that China is is not gonna, that, ha that we can prevent China from rising to be a, an economic powerhouse, that, that concept is like, they are an economic powerhouse. Yep. They are you know, the second largest economy in the world, probably soon the largest. And that is something that we have to pragmatically think about for the, for the national security of the American people is how we're gonna live in a world where American hegemony is, you know, has a, a true rival, right? That's where we are. Sure. And so sure. when we think about all of our great corporations, there are huge operations in China. I don't know how you would Split that the rare earth issue is actually pretty clear cut. If that ever happened, I mean, our site's in California. Sure. We're, our goal is to make end to end. You know, our goal is to make sure that Tesla could wouldn't have to be in China. Our goal is to make sure that Apple doesn't have to be in China. Now, what we would like is those companies could help a little bit in that process. But but we're doing our part sort of in that process. But it's so intertwined. Uh, I don't even know where you'd begin. But isn't isn't exactly your story and what you just said proof that? It can be unwound a little bit, even if not completely. You are in the process of unwinding the intertwined nature of this global economy. You are actually 
living proof that there is an effort underway to bifurcate these worlds, that this intertwined, lowest cost, most efficient supply chain logic that has domineered the last 40 years is shifting because of this U.S.-China rivalry, at least in part. Well, I view it a little- case, resilience you know, right. supply chain. That's exactly it. I was going to say, I view it a little differently, which is this is not, this should not be a total unwind. I don't believe, you know, I, I, I believe this is an economic rivalry that ultimately over a very long period of time can get to a good place in the sense that I believe this can be a net positive for the world so long as, you know, it doesn't take a dark turn. And I think that the goal that we should be thinking about is the era of outsourcing to China for, because it helps somebody's quarter and management gets paid. Right, that era is over. The just-in-time era is over, and now it's about supply chain reliability because reliability and strategic ask, access to supply chain are assets to industry. And so, our mission is to make sure that in this new economic competitive landscape, that our industry has these assets because the Chinese have these assets. And by the way, the Chinese, the China is the largest OEM market in the world. As I said, if we make magnets one day in America and we can sell some in China because they want to buy them. I have no problem selling some to China. Like we great, we sell to China today. They're a great customer. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think what it is, is that what we never want is we never want Tesla to get the phone call that says, you know, actually, uh, you know, your magnet price is going to be higher and we can't deliver and you got to shut down your, your line. But by the way, don't worry, there's a, there's, um, you know, six other Chinese models that are at the dealership today, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And so that we just want to make sure that that um, our industry can can truly compete. And that, again, that's that's what we're after today. It's that standards concept again. Yep. Um, and so that's yep. how we see it. Awesome. Jim, we could go on and on for for yeah. another hour, I'm sure, if yeah. not more. But, you know, has I it been to... an hour already? Well, wow, the time flies. <laughs> I want to be respectful <laughs> of your time. And yeah. I have to say, look, I've been a, a fan. You've accomplished so much. And by far the most successful thing in your book, at least in my version of, of your accomplishments is having tolerated Todd. Um, <laughs> no, I, all joking aside, I'm doing this because Todd's probably listening, but uh, no, uh, seriously, thank you. Thank you for taking yeah. the time today. Thanks for sharing the story. Uh, thanks for being a, a, a friend and someone to bounce ideas off of. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I wish you continued success in this endeavor and I'm sure you and I will talk sometime soon, but thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I, I you know, I love the show. So uh, anytime and All right. I'll see you awesome. soon. All right. Thanks, okay. Jim. All right. Bye. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. If you find value in these discussions, we hope you'll consider supporting this series by becoming a member of the Think for Yourself community. More information can be found at www.patreon.com slash and please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 